1: Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith and I'd like to introduce the Rockland Lobster Festival to my Yarmouth Clam Festival, Curtis Wister. How are you doing
2: today, Curtis? All right. I'm doing well, Ben. Doing well. We're in full swing of summer around here, so that's an appropriate choice.
1: Exactly right, and and I think seafood is on a lot of people's mind when they come to Maine, and I think that's, that's right. the that's the tourism thing to do is you got to sample some of the uh, the seafood here, which is excellent. That's you know, right. to, to those that are are not Mainers and haven't been here, it is it is excellent and worth indulging every moment you can <laughs> while you're here. But um, you know we we've been covering lots of things in our show, right? We we've had lots of uh, of kind of theming going on lately. Uh, you know, obviously we we had something um, with Medicare was mm-hmm. was kind of a big topic that we just went through. We we just had a gentleman come on, Dwayne Scott Cerny, about uh, what happens when our loved one passes away and having to handle their things inflation of course is something that's coming up a lot yeah. uh but one we are, we're really excited about today and, it, and it's going to be a heavier topic yeah, is around the topic of uh Basically, uh, substance abuse disorders and substance use disorders, and and that's something where you know, and people go, well, geez, how does this have to do with my retirement? And I think a lot of people are very affected, right? They mm. either they might know somebody them personally or a loved one, and I, I think that's something where, from our clients, we've had this situation where, you know, we've had a client or two where the, a loved one has a, a substance use disorder. They've had uh, mental health challenges. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had Joanne uh, Palumbo Macaulay come on. That's and right. talk about her own personal uh, challenges as a figure, uh, public figure. But, you know, the abuse of prescription opioids itself is a serious national crisis. And while the op- opioid epidemic has been declared a national public health emergency, in Maine itself, the situation situation is particularly alarming. Our state's rate of opioid-related overdose deaths is amongst the highest in the country. Yeah. In Maine, drug deaths have been trending upward since 2014 when the state first saw drug death toxi- toxicology reports containing non-pharmaceutical fentanyl and fentanyl analogs. Drug deaths had peaked in 2018 and began to fall in 2019. However, the COVID-19 pandemic has created lots of instability in the drug supply, use patterns and well-beings of Mainers. Mm-hmm. So as you may know from listening to our show, you know, we, we attempt to find experts that look to provide solutions to real problems that our clients face or may face in retirement. So what do we do when our child, our grandchild, our spouse, a loved one, a friend becomes addicted to substances? How do we live with ourselves when a loved one maybe commits suicide? So when our next guest's son, Kevin begged her for permission to die, she refused Kevin has spent half his life struggling with addiction while his single mom battled courts, healthcare companies, rehab facilities, and mental health professionals in an effort to protect him. Mm As their relationship strained and his drug use progressed, she was forced to accept and love Kevin as he was in their limited time together, two years before his suicide. In her book, Kevin's Choice, A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Mental Illness, Addiction, and Suicide, she tells a story of trying to navigate the dark worlds of her son's substance use and depression while also addressing her complicated guilt and regret over how she handled it. In the process, she shines a light on the hidden anguish of countless parents who are taking care of children that society tells them to abandon
2: yeah that's right, Ben and you know, for parents who have borne witness to overdose overdoses, arrests, addiction, treatment, and incarceration, and even death, Kevin's choice is a raw, intimate memoir of a mother's grief that shows it's possible and necessary to go on even amidst the unimaginable. Our guest is also the co-author of the best selling book. The Epiphanies Project. As an advocate for those suffering from substance use disorders, mental health issues, and grief, she has been featured in Salon and the Huffington Post. Our guest uh, currently lives in Southern California with her sister, Therese, as well as her cat, tortoise, and two dogs. Um, so at this time, please welcome Barbara Legere to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Barbara, thank you so much for coming on our show today.
3: Thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm really glad to be here and talk with you.
1: Yeah, and I, I know there's a lot we want to dig into, Barbara. Here, and and again, there's these are very heavy topics as well. But we want to hear a lot more about your life story here, and then your son Kevin's upbringing, right? And because I think that the biggest thing we want to honor here is Kevin as a person, and not just only talking about maybe a challenge uh, or a, a lifelong challenge that he had, right? So mm. I want to hear a little bit more about your life story and then Kevin's upbringing.
3: Okay, sure. Um, my life story: I was born and raised in Southern California. Um, unfortunately, I lost my dad when I was only fifteen, but um, my mom raised uh, myself, my younger brother, and sister. So, um, I actually ended up moving back to my family home that I grew up in when I had Kevin as a single mom. So, I'm still there
1: today. Okay, so. Can you can you talk a little bit about Kevin? Like what what did he like? What was uh, what was him uh, as as the things that he was finding his passion for and the things that he was finding an aptitude to, to for? What what was what were the things that he was really passionate about doing in his life?
3: Kevin was passionate about cars. Kevin loved cars, anything about cars. He was I called him a walking encyclopedia because he would read car and driver magazines since the time he was able to read. And he could tell you anything, mostly about the real fancy cars and the fast cars. And that was his passion. He was a great driver. I actually taught him how to drive when he was um, eight years old Mm -hmm. (laughs) on an old dirt road. And uh, he loved driving. He was really good at it. He always thought maybe he could be a race car driver, but his life got interrupted by other things. Um, Kevin was very, very intelligent. Mm -hmm. And He got terrible grades in school, but he was a very smart young man. Everybody that knew him liked him. He was open and generous. He just, he liked everybody. He was just a very loving kind of a person. And he was also a sensitive person. And I think that's where a lot of his struggles came in. He was easily hurt. Um, His feelings were easily hurt. And growing up without a father was very, very difficult on him. So a lot of my personal guilt comes from from that. Gotcha.
1: No, I was just going to say one thing I I really appreciated reading in the in the book that I thought was really great was uh, his uh, his actually getting in with uh, kind of the gun club and right and being able to yes. skeet shoot and I, again, I'm not a skeet shooter so I didn't realize this but the, whole, the hitting all 25 skeet targets he was able to do that. And then he would throw his hat in the air and everybody would shoot his hat.
3: It was such, it was like, I'll never forget. That was one of the best moments for me. He loved, we also love shooting, target shooting and Mm -hmm. speed, but if you do accomplish shooting all 25, it's kind of a big deal. And so you throw your hat in the air and everybody boom, and you end up with a hat full of holes, but it's like an honor and he was very good at that as well. And our, archery was also one of his passions. He was amazing shot. He was almost too good of a shot. He <laughs> he could hit the bullseye from so far away. And he had several types of bows, compound bow, the, I don't even know what they're all called, but the um, recurve. And he did really Mm. well with all of them. I loved watching that side of him and watching him excel. It's something that he really loved.
2: That's
1: yeah, that, that was a really fun, cool story. Cause again, I, and then he's wearing his hat afterwards and he, obviously you could tell he just took so much pride in wearing a hat
2: full of bullet holes. <laughs> yeah.
1: of, wow. That's pretty neat.
2: <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> um, so I have another kind of just kind of general question, Barbara. Um, so obviously we're here on the retirement success in Maine podcast, so I want to ask, do you have any connections to the state of Maine? I know you're in in California right now. I but, do. All right.
3: I do. My father was born and raised in um, Livermore Falls, Maine. All right. And he's one of nine children. And they lived in Livermore Falls. I, at the time, was a paper mill kind of town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them worked there. And eventually, they all trickled over to Southern California. So that's how my parents eventually met. But yes, I visited Maine when I was a child. I absolutely loved it there. I didn't want to go home. I loved the lake I went to. And it was beautiful. It was a slower paced lifestyle. I just loved it up there.
1: Mm. Pretty cool. Um, Obviously, from a life and karmic uh, connections is, hey, here you are, you know, Obviously from your dad's uh connection to Maine. And here we are kind of on the retirement retirement success and Maine podcast talking about uh Maine and retirement and, and life themes. So pretty cool how life has some some nice connections to it. I wanna I wanna ask uh start getting into a little bit more about Kevin and and some of um, some of the signs you're starting to see in around because I know in your book you're talking about you're starting to see your uh, as he's growing developing you're seeing some signs of mental illness and also the um, how why and when did he turn to substance use?
3: Yes, that's a that's a really good question. I did notice when he was quite young that he had depression, and I personally had struggled with depression as a child, so I was not sure if it was normal. I didn't talk to anyone about mine. I held it inside. And I just thought, well, maybe this is just what life feels like. Maybe there's a dark cloud for everybody. And it didn't seem like it. But when I noticed it in Kevin, especially around the third grade, something definitely changed within him. He wasn't as outgoing. He wasn't smiling as much. And his teacher even mentioned to me that she thought he might have depression and need some help. Um, At that time, I decided to take antidepressants myself to see what they would happen, you know, if it helped me because I didn't want to medicate my child. I was adamantly against that Mm -hmm. at such Mm -hmm. an early age, but it was a significant difference in my life and that black cloud lifted. And I did end up taking Kevin to a, a doctor and he was prescribed medications, which helped him a lot. In fact, it helped him to the point where eventually he stopped taking them around junior high years. Mm-hmm. It was his sophomore year in high school that I noticed and, and all parents say this, my child started hanging around with a different crowd. It's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Your their friends changed. His childhood friends on the street were still in his life but he started hanging out with a different crowd of people and i'm not blaming those people in fact i i grew to love one of those people as if he were my own son but at that time i noticed he was doing different things his his attitude was you know he wasn't hugging me as much He thought he was a tough guy all of a sudden and um he got caught drinking and smoking weed at a local park and the police called me That was my first indication. I was shocked. So another question I get a lot is, is marijuana a gateway drug? You know, I I have to say yes, part of me wants to say no, because I know people that use it Mm -hmm. medically. And it's, it's not a negative thing. But for someone who's predisposed, it is like, okay, I did that. Now I can try this. And It kind of opens that door and makes you feel a little less vulnerable, a little more brave to try the next thing that comes along. And as we know in today's world, that is a life-threatening choice for some people.
1: Mm -hmm.
3: But yes, um, when Kevin was seventeen, is when he discovered heroin. One of his friends offered it to him, and although there were three people in the room with him, two of them said, "Please don't try it. It's ruined our lives." The third person talked him into it. She said, oh, come on, just try it. And he did. Mm. And that was it one time. And he wanted to do it again and again. Three months later, I found out he he confessed to me what had been going on with him. And I was shocked because at that time, the opiate epidemic wasn't in the news. I had no idea you could even get heroin. I was completely naive at that point. Mm.
1: And, and Barbara, I think one of the points you make in your book is because I, I, I think when you when you maybe don't have uh, or you don't know somebody that has been afflicted, and you don't have you don't know somebody that, that is is kind of going through this um, this substance use disorder, and I, I think it's easy to just go, well, that's a, that's that's a different group. It's not my circle, and and you made the point of not my kid right that's not my yeah. not my kid my kid wouldn't do that yeah. because i've talked to my kid about and and it's almost like well the judgment is well obviously these parents didn't talk to their kids about it cuz they just would have said no right he he would have been in that room and would have just said no my mom told me not to do it Right, it's it's just it, not yeah. that simple. In in you oh, were also gosh. saying from a, from the socioeconomic perspective, the the people that you've known over the years that uh, that have fallen into substances have been maybe middle to upper middle class as well. So it's not just a hey, here's here's this this kind of a chain of people that continue to fall in the same mistakes generationally. That there's there's kind of other things at, at play there too. I wanted to make that point because I, I know that was a yes. really, oh. that's really really big one in your book. It's that, huge. Because um, yes, you're like hey, this is my child, but this could be, you know, this could be my kid right now, yes. right? This yeah. could, this could absolutely be mine.
3: Yeah. We have a saying among other uh, parents in my support group the three more dangerous words you can say are not my kid we all talk to our children about drugs i think it's something that most parents do now it's just part of raising a child in this environment but um it doesn't change anything unfortunately it doesn't i wish it did i i wish it uh would would i'm sure for some children it does make a difference that their parents said that but for most it doesn't it's that curiosity that it's not going to happen to me and and yes in the area I live in it's a predominantly upper middle class area and I can say I honestly know at least 300 parents personally that I know them their name and their children's name that have lost someone over the last 12 years
2: so as Ben kind of mentioned earlier, uh, on a previous episode of our show, we had Joanne McCauley, who is a former women's basketball coach uh, for Duke University. She came on our show and talked about her bipolar disorder diagnosis and just how managing brain health has become a, a lifelong journey for her. So obviously we've read and you've shared with us that your son Kevin had his own mental health challenges. Um, can you just kind of teach us and, and our listeners a little bit of why those with mental health challenges, in fact, turn to substances? And then maybe you can personalize a little bit with Kevin. I know you just shared a lot of that kind of story, but how and why do you think Kevin himself turned to substances?
3: That's an excellent question. And it's so important because a lot of times, if you aren't properly diagnosed and you're not on the right medications, and then you discover this. In his case, heroin,
2: mm.
3: uh, the substance that makes you feel perfect. Yeah. It makes you feel like there is nothing wrong with me. The anxiety goes out the window. Depression doesn't exist. You feel great. You're happy. You're euphoric. You use that as your drug. Yeah. And unfortunately, it doesn't last. That feeling doesn't last. So you're constantly needing more, more of the substance, more often which leads to where do I find the money to get more, which leads to breaking the law, which leads to being arrested. And it's a vicious, vicious cycle. And for Kevin, he was diagnosed with several different things. Bipolar was one of them. Um, Schizoaffective disorder was one because he was having psychosis. Mm -hmm. And the problem is when you're simultaneously using drugs like heroin, and he also used meth quite often, it, we never knew for sure if it was an accurate diagnosis. He yeah. did try taking medicine, psych uh, medications, but um, he wouldn't stop using the heroin long enough for it to work. He did have some sobriety, and during that time, he was doing really, really well, um, but it didn't last. Something happened, and he started using it again. Yeah. So, yeah, gotcha. mental health is... Is something we have to stay on top of. I mean, yeah. it's a real issue. And as your guest mentioned, I mean, it's a lifelong struggle. You have to be on your medications and be diligent. It's not Well, easy. And,
1: and Barbara, to your point, is here's somebody, Joanne McCauley, who has, you know, he, she's one of the top women's basketball coaches in the country with all of the resources at her fingertips, with all of the family that even knew, you know, her immediate family knew a lot of this and she's still talking about the stigma and not wanting to let people know and, and hiding in shame of that stigma. And we're trying to figure out medications and her doctors working with her and she's scared about, Hey, well, I think I can, I'm good now. I can just go off of it. And then that caused more manic uh, episodes. And uh, so, yeah, so here, here, even even the people, I think, that have all of the resources in the world are still unable to kind of perfectly balance that 100% of the time. So I, I think that was – I just want to make sure there's a through line from, from a lot of this. And I, I think one of, the, one of the things I also wanted to ask you about, Barbara, was – you know, again, where we hear, especially in Maine, we're a rural city or town as a way, like one big rural town. And and you kind of have this, all right, well, hey, when, when there's things going on, we've heard from our previous generations that tough loves the answer, you know, or maybe it's the answer to situations like this. You know, maybe we hear from others who advise us to give tough love to a loved one in this situation. Just sit them down and talk some sense into them Or I know you use the phrase in your book, just let them bottom out. let them, you know, let them get to rock bottom. And in all sudden that that will improve the situation. They'll want to get out of it. And isn't that the solution in these cases? So want to do a little bit of fact or myth here of what uh, our question is, does tough love actually work in your opinion? And if not, does it do more harm than good?
3: That is one of my uh, hot buttons. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. Tough love does help some people. I have talked to some people who told me that when they had nothing, nothing, that is when they were able to pull themselves up and get by. But that was the minority. I have talked to so many people and in my own personal experience, when I, um, was listening to the opinions of others about you need to kick your son out of the house. Don't help him. Don't give him money. Don't talk to him. Don't even give him food. I tried it. I tried it and I was miserable, but he was, he was okay. He found a way to, you know, find the other addicts on the street, and and he got by, and everything was fine for him. But what it did do to him is it put a wedge between us, where he felt like no one cared anymore, that he Mm. was unsupported, unloved, and that his own mother wasn't there for him. So that, that didn't last very long for me. I personally do not believe that tough love is the answer. I think when you are in addiction, and when your life has been controlled by this It's like a nightmare. You need all the love and support that you can get. You need to be told you are valuable. I love you. You can do this. Let's do this together. You're not alone. I'm here. You know, One of my sayings with Kevin was we're a team. We all said, okay, we're a team. We're going to get this together. And I would do whatever I could that he wasn't capable of doing for himself to help him get the help he needed. Yeah, so... (sighs) I, I, I don't think tough love is the answer especially when we're talking about heroin or yeah. opiates because rock bottom it can be death right. it's mm-hmm. it's That's that right. cut and dry. it's very
1: scary I, I want to make just a quick point too barbara is I think also generational lessons might not work for every situation too it could be that you know the you know a few generations ago that maybe the the, the drugs that were were being abused at that point might've been just a, a, not the same level of toxicity that it is maybe today. So maybe, maybe those lessons were appropriate in the time, but, but again, it's this, well, let's just continue to use the same solution since it all worked for me and it must work for you as well. Right. It would, would kind of be my, my question to you.
3: Yes, exactly. I things have changed so much. I mean, with fentanyl on the streets, as you guys mentioned, I just, it breaks my heart that Maine is having such a serious problem. Um, you guys are tiny compared to the rest of us yeah. mm-hmm. that you're having a huge, huge problem. And that's just heartbreaking. But fentanyl is deadly. It is deadly. You can use one time and your life is over yeah. and you cannot even know you're using. I mean, you, tough love doesn't fit in with that anymore.
2: Right.
3: Um, it's just, it's just too risky. I just think we need to love and support each other. And I know that even sounds a little naive, but it being kind to someone who's in his worst hour or her worst hour. To me, that is going to do more good than being tough with them. Yeah. Okay. They already feel bad enough about themselves. Kevin, he did not love himself. He was incapable of that. And although he could accept love for me, he could not love himself. And that was the most heartbreaking thing at all of all for a parent.
2: to see that happening yeah and that that really leads into my next question Barbara and you know from reading some of your book um, you know we know that Kevin really struggled with the pain of his addiction and really wanted to find his peace so I just want to ask you what was giving Kevin you know that hope and purpose when he was between you know I know you mentioned there was periods of sobriety there so what was really giving him that that hope and purpose in those times
3: um, I think what gave him hope and purpose was just the the thought that yeah I, I can do this I do have a future, just seeing looking into the future and seeing what he wanted to do with his life. He also loved jewelry and he wanted to be a gemologist and study diamonds and go to that fancy school. I can't think of what it's called right now, but you know he did have dreams and aspirations, and you know he wanted to fall in love. He wanted to have children. And those things kept him going for a time but even those dreams and those hopes, they just weren't strong enough to, yeah. to help him overcome. Huh.
2: Mm-hmm. So in those positive uh, kind of periods there where right, he has so much hope and he is working towards that, can you just describe some of the positive impacts that he was making on you and or friends or others in his life as he would continue to work on stabilizing himself?
3: Yeah, he loved, um, he loved going to meetings and talking to the newcomers. Mm-hmm. Um, he did go to AA meetings, even though he preferred the AA over the NA meetings. The NA is Narcotics Anonymous. Gotcha. He just felt that he would run into less heroin addicts there, and it would be less tempting. Unfortunately, you can meet people in in a meeting that can say, hey, maybe we should just get out of here and go get hot. But he Mm -hmm. loved going to meetings and speaking at meetings. He loved encouraging his friends. Um, He was a very generous kind of a person. He loved his grandmother with all his heart. She helped Mm -hmm. me raise him. And just to see the love between them and um, how protective he was of her and how he would help her around the house. And and same with my sister who also helped me raise him. They were very, very close, but Kevin's friends would say he's probably their most loyal friend. Mm. And I've had some of them approach me after his death and say, um, I've like got one girl that stands out in my mind. And she said, Oh yeah, Kevin was the guy that if we were in trouble with any guy or we were stuck at a party, we would call Kevin because we knew no matter what he was doing, he would drop everything and that he was safe and that he would take good care of us. And that makes me feel really proud of him.
1: Yeah, because I, I think that those are the core values you want to in in any situation that yeah. that are shining through, and I think that that really speaks to the love that he had in his upbringing and in what you surrounded with. So that that, that that's got to make you feel great. I want to I want to ask a question about money because I know at core we're kind of financial advisors. So we always kind of go to what's safe for us, and and money's the safe thing for us. But I, I know um, I could guess that many of our listeners, clients, or even us. You know, we would all give up all of our money if we knew we could permanently solve our loved ones addiction and mental health challenges. Yeah. So I guess the question we're just interested in hearing is how did you face that challenge with Kevin? How did you know whether the money you were using to help Kevin live and, and recover? was helping or hurting a situation. Cause I think there's, you know, going back to a little bit of the tough love conversation here a little bit, yeah. right. Is am I, am I just enabling with money, you know, and I'm just doing whatever I think is easiest to my power to do, or is this actually helping, right? Is this actually gonna, this is a tool to use and that will actually kind of help him towards that path to recovery.
3: That is a really good question. And as far as spending money on recovery, I spent a lot of money out of my own pocket in addition to using his insurance to get him treatment. He was in, I think, 13 different drug treatment programs. And sometimes drug treatment programs work and sometimes they don't. It really depends on the person. Mm -hmm. And my advice to anyone that is considering sending someone to drug treatment that is not Asking to go is to think twice about it because I could force Kevin to go, but if he wasn't ready and he wasn't the one saying, mom, please send me, it was kind of a waste of our time and money and resources. As far as helping them financially, that's a really tough one. I tried never to give Kevin cash, but there were times when I just, you know, he wasn't living at home and I did pay for his food. I paid for his cigarettes. Do I regret that now? Um, I can't say that I do because I just wanted him. I didn't want him to suffer any more than he was already suffering. And that was the bottom line. I wanted to take his suffering away. And that goes back to tough love, too. You can't take someone's suffering away. Um, You can make them suffer more, but you can't take it away. And no matter what, they are ultimately the one that has to decide that they are going to give it their all. And Kevin was unable to do that. For whatever reason within him, he eventually was unable to make that transition to recovery. So I don't know if I got off track and didn't answer no, uh, no, I, yeah, No, I,
1: I hear you because I, I think it's, some of it is is trying to looking for confidence in that mighty decision, right? And I think what you're saying is, or at least what I hear you saying is, hey, when I, I think, look, we're going to do everything in our power to help Kevin and, and try to get him there. But um, if he's not willing to go, then why are we going to just – we could go to the most expensive facility, which I think you were even saying, well, it could have been $50,000 right. and we could have done that. But if he's not, doesn't want to be there. And if he says, look, it's the minute I'm getting out, I'm going to go right back to doing what I was doing. Then yeah. what, what is the point there? So they, you, you want to obviously be matching the solution yeah. to them wanting the solution, right. And, and yes. using the resources, what I, what I kind of hear you say, but I, yes. I want to ask a different question, Barbara, too, about, cause I'm just thinking about all of our audience out there and the people that, that they know and love and they're trying to support them. But I could see where, you know, you kind of describe this in your book a little bit. We say this about, especially with couples, is this concept of loving somebody else more than you love yourself. Right, and I get that through your book. Right, is that I I, might, I maybe love Kevin more than I even love myself here, and I will do anything. That's this unconditional love. I will do whatever it takes to get him to there. So, but at the same point, I, I am reading some of your book here. Of how did you balance taking care of yourself? But also providing for Kevin, because I could see where, you know, at some points, hey, I, I need to give everything I got to him. But that might mean that I'm not taking care of myself along the way. How did you how did you kind of find that balance or maybe did you not find that balance?
3: That is an excellent question, because behind the scenes of every person out there that's using drugs or caught up in that world, there's usually parents, siblings, close friends that are suffering in a way that you can't imagine. Um, the worry, the stress, the being up all night, the feeling sick, the wondering, is this the last time I'll ever see him? The phone rings and you panic. I did not do a good job of self-care in the beginning. I did not. I, I threw myself completely into my son's recovery and trying to help him, and that did not do him or myself any good. I got to a point as time went on, mainly by educating myself and just being around other people and talking to other parents and just having the revelation that, okay, something's got to give or I'm going to have a breakdown. I came to that point where I had to sit down with myself and accept the fact that my son was a was using drugs in a way that may cause him to not survive, that I may lose my son. I had to accept that Kevin is Kevin where he is right now. Um, He's doing things that I don't agree with. He's living a lifestyle that's dangerous. He's depressed. He's anxious. I had to accept all that about him and love him right where he was, while at the same time finding things to take care of myself and at, at that point, I started doing yoga, which was a huge help to me. Um, just really taking care of myself and just doing your basic, you know, eating mm-hmm. right, exercise, so, you know, your basics. I wasn't doing those before. Yeah. I I was a mess. I was just a mess. So I I highly recommend skipping that part of mm-hmm. being a rat and. Um, <laughs> And taking care of yourself throughout, if you have someone in your life that is causing that kind of turmoil and stress, um, you have to take care of yourself to be able to take care of anyone else. And I think we all know that, but it's easier said than done.
2: So I want to, I want to kind of keep going here, Barbara. And so unfortunately, Kevin did take his own life in 2020. So we just want to ask, you know, how have you grieved Kevin and found a way to cope with this grief, um, you know, over the past couple of years?
3: Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, well, when it happened immediately, I've I've since learned about a trauma response. And I think when it initially happened that day that it happened, I went into uh, screaming, shaking, yelling. I did all these things that just naturally happened to me. And I think looking back now, I'm glad that my body took over and that I wasn't able to stop and decide how to react. It just happens for you. And that initial first few months, you just don't think you're ever going to get over it. Your life changes in an instant. The most important person in my world was gone. It, 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 it's hard to describe the the depth of the pain. I mean, I literally hurt my heart literally ached. But we, we go on. We have we have to go on. Mm. And as time went on, again, acceptance came in. Um, I realized that he is still in my life. He's still my son. I may not be able to tangibly hug him anymore. But I still talk to him. I still think about him constantly. I keep his memory alive. And I think for the most important important thing for me, and I think for a lot of others that I know, is to find others in your situation. Find other parents who have lost a child to overdose or suicide, and they are the ones that are going to be able to understand what you're going through, be able to listen, and then you find yourself loving their child, too. I mean, I know there's so many people that have never met Kevin that love him. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I feel the exact same way about their children. Mm-hmm. We share their birthdays. We share their anniversary dates. We talk about them. Mm-hmm. Your friends may feel uncomfortable when you lose someone, when you lose a child. They, A lot of people were uncomfortable around grief. Mm-hmm. And at first, I was hurt by that. And then I just had to accept that that's a societal thing. We could go off on another tangent, but um, it's just how our society is right now. So that's why I highly recommend finding a support group of other grieving parents, because that's the number one way that I have been able to move forward. And I've turned my grief into passion. I I will always miss Kevin. I will grieve him every moment of my life, but I've turned it into a passion for hopefully helping others. And that's why I wrote the book. (laughs) It's not just about Kevin. It's about so many people and it's about parents and it's about the prison system and the problems. And so that's really helped in my grief was just writing the book and feeling like a sigh of relief, almost like, okay, I did something to help get it all out. And hopefully if I can help one other person, I will be, I will be thrilled.
2: Yeah. Well, and I'll say it's just incredible that you're doing that and you're using, you know, this tragic um, event in your life to hopefully help others. I just applaud every minute of that because it's incredible
3: thank you
2: so much for saying that and and barbara
1: I'll, I'll add too, is i think and of course what what your your expression of love for kevin and in, in, uh, it began being the team with him and and kind of supporting him through throughout and and even continue to you kind of even kind of mentioning reviving him at certain points when you know and using maybe narcan and and the things of of that nature to keep him going and because again who knows about what tomorrow brings is maybe tomorrow is there is there's a wait there's maybe a medicinal cure there's other ways that maybe he could find that day to live on and, and finding hope every day and you providing him every day of hope uh for throughout the remainder Uh, the duration of his life is such a, I think an inspiration for people that are going through it now and feel the depths of it and kind of going, Hey, it's not a, I know Kevin's no longer with you, but, it, but all the effort wasn't in failure. It was actually in success. So I, that's just what I've taken from your book was, was that kind of that insight there of, Hey, this is what a lot of people can get from it. And I want to ask a question about stigma. You talk about this a bunch in your book about stigma against addiction and mental illness, providing barriers to Kevin. And then obviously you in turn supporting Kevin to get help. So you're even mentioning of ER docs that would look at him and they would say, Hey, I, I see his situation. I see the pain and I see, um, that, you know, what, what he has in him right now. And he's not worth it. I'm going to triage. I'm going to go to somebody that they viewed more valuable in a certain way. So this, um, this stigma, this, uh, this discrimination against Kevin just because of where he was. And I, so I guess my question is, how do you think that was? providing barriers to Kevin for those that are listeners, they haven't read your book yet. How did, how did those uh, provide barriers to getting Kevin help? And if Kevin was still alive today, so I know we're just talking, I know you've gone through a a longer journey than just a a year or two of this. Mm -hmm. So you've done, you know, more than a decade of this or, you know, decade and a half of this. So how was that stigma changed for maybe even from, maybe earlier when Kevin was seeking help at age 17 all the way through when he passes in 2020. And then maybe even today, how, how is that evolving? And then is there, is there changes being made in the consciousness of the public here about uh, helping those with substance use disorders? Uh,
3: that's such an important question um, for Kevin, how it affected him. Um, for example, the, the, example used of the ER doctor, you know, when someone tells you to your face that your life is not valuable and you're already feeling that your life is not valuable um, and this is someone in authority, it just compounds it. Um, it made it very difficult. It was like reinforcing um, him his negative beliefs in himself, that he was worthless, that he wasn't valuable, that um, he didn't deserve to be here. It is hard to even believe some of the things that have been said to people that I know um, the way that their children or loved ones have been treated. And it kind of blows my mind that it's still happening today. I do see a trend that it is getting better because we're talking about it more. I think more people are willing to accept that this is not a choice. You may make that initial choice, to use a drug but you did not choose to ruin your life you did not choose for it to overtake everything Um, and with mental health there should be no shame i mean i think of the recent losses we've had of celebrities we have lost some celebrities that on the outside appear to be so happy and on the inside they're depressed and it's it should be it should be something that we accept in society that this is normal so many people struggle. It is nothing to be ashamed of. We need to support one another and be aware that someone that may be smiling or telling jokes or singing on stage inside their life is, is difficult. I just think being kind to one another really does make a difference and being accepting. Mm -hmm. And I think talking about it does lessen the stigma I I never was ashamed, even in the beginning. I talked about it openly since day one, but I know a lot of people feel a lot of shame. They don't want to admit that um, their family member or themselves has this problem, and there should be no shame. There is absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. It's not a moral failing at all. It's not a character defect. It's a chemical thing, and Mm -hmm. it happens to so many of us.
2: Yeah. And as, you know, Ben referenced in the intro, you know, this, and we've talked about it even since, the state of Maine right now is experiencing some of the highest rates of opioid overdose deaths nationally. And, you know, Ben and I sitting here in Maine right now, um, we might know a family member or a friend uh, or a friend who has a direct family. member. Right. The circle is just so small and, you know, anyone we know could be dealing with or, or helping someone struggling with addiction. So I want to ask, what would be your advice for someone that really wants to help that family member or friend Right? How can we be a be a, a support system for someone that is directly struggling with addiction um, or a substance use disorder?
3: I think communicating that to them is the, yeah. the number one thing. It's just saying, "I understand. I may not be in your shoes, but I care about you. I want to be here for you. Never hesitate to ask me to help you. Yeah. Just let people know you're available, non-judgmentally, mm-hmm. to listen to anything they have to say." Uh, sometimes people just feel lonely and like no one is hearing them just to know that somebody cares and will listen Mm -hmm. and for the family members too, to reach out to them and let them know that you're there. You care. I think Mm -hmm. it's really as simple as that.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, and and instead of being kind, right. Is I think just kind of leaning into that and going, Hey, I, you know, are you okay? And uh, do you want to just talk about it, Right. Do you just want to like, can we just go take a moment and just talk about what's going on and what's happening? And Hey, can I go to, you know, to a support meeting with you? Can I, you know, can I give you a ride to it? Uh, you know, Absolutely. And, and, and any of those things, even though it maybe feels very inconsequential and small to us personally might be extremely large of a, of a thing to to let that person know that they have people in their corner feel we're backing them and want to want to see success and want to see them get better.
3: Excellent point, Ben, because, and asking someone a tangible question like that is, can I drive you to a meeting? Mm. Do you want to go take a walk? I mean, just not asking them, what can I do to help you? That is not going to do much, but to offer them something tangible, even to go have coffee or just to take a little walk.
1: Because I think things will then come out, right. Is I think when you start, I think, I don't know. Just, just in our experience, when you start doing the, how are you doing? We've all been trained to go, I'm okay. I'm fine. I'm good. You know, we're all trained to just give the non answer to just move on to the other thing. And sometimes it feels like we gotta, we gotta just go, Hey, let's, let's take a time out. You know, let's, let's just go somewhere. And maybe you don't have to say a thing. We can just kind of be, um, and maybe that's part of the yoga the part of that, but uh, is yeah. just kind of be there. And then let's kind of, if there's something that we can help out with, let's talk about it. But uh, I want to, I want to talk another piece of this too, is obviously substance uh, use and, and addiction and mental illness has been a part of this, but uh, ooh, I, I just personally, I've experienced this in my life growing up in my little high school, we had, I think, like 350 kids. And I think I had about five or six of those kids that committed suicide over the, over that, that time frame. And so just kind of seeing that in those formative ages as well. But and I know suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the US for all ages. And it's a CDC statistic. And there's one suicide for every estimated 25 suicide attempts. So there's a lot of attempts going on there uh, before before that actually happens. Again, that's another CDC statistic. Um, in your book, in your very first chapter, and this was, ooh, Kevin asking if it's okay if he kills himself. You had actually talked to them about suicide many times, and that he had been asking you not to revive him if you found him. You even re- referenced an eight-hour conversation you had with Kevin about suicide after he asked that question where so I guess the question I I was going to dig in but I want to hear what you say about it how did you try to help Kevin with these suicidal thoughts and do you feel like increased substance use inevitably leads to suicidal thoughts and tendencies that's
3: a good question Um, that day that you referred to the eight hour conversation that was probably the second hardest day of my life um, because he was so adamant. He wanted me to give him permission to end his life. And of course, I said no all day long. Yeah. But what he was really saying, I realized behind, will you let me do this, was will you be okay if I do it? And I think that was his real question. Um, he had made attempts in the past. I had, and he had always said, don't revive me. Don't revive me. Well, of course I revived him. Yeah. Who is mm, not going yeah. to revive your child or call 911. I've called mm. 911 or used Narcan um, on him myself, but I forgot the second part of the question. Um, Do you
1: feel like increased substance use inevitably oh. leads to suicidal thoughts and tendencies as well?
3: For Kevin, it did. For Kevin, it did because the more he used, the further down that dark hole he went and the more hopeless he felt. And he just felt like he could not get out of it. And I think sometimes he feared, you know, I'm, this is such a low place that I've taken my mom. My mom is suffering and he hated to see me suffer. He hated it. He, sincerely believed I would be better off without him and he mm-hmm. told me that on several occasions he, he sincerely believed that and he wanted me to say I'll be okay mm-hmm. of course I'm not okay of course I'm not of course I would take him back in a minute with every single problem he's ever had and I would do it all over a hundred times to have him here but um, yes I think that I think that substance abuse does, create a darker environment for someone and gives them that much more, um, hopelessness in fighting their illness.
2: Yeah. So I have a, a, another question that I I know I'm, I'm, we've kind of led up to this, I think throughout this entire conversation, but I want to ask you, what is Kevin's lasting legacy on you in this world?
3: (sighs) Kevin's lasting legacy. He leaves behind, um, A lot of love. He leaves behind an example of what unconditional love is and how accepting he was of everyone in his life. You know, he had had his faults too, of course, but he um, he was a genuine person that cared about others. He leaves behind a family that misses him very much and friends. Um, He's left his friends behind for me, which I is one of the best things Mm -hmm. in my life is his friends that will keep in touch with me. I got a picture the other day, you know, once you lose someone, there are no new photographs. So one of his buddies Mm -hmm. found something on his phone and sent it to me, a picture of Kevin and three girls. And it was like the best gift I could get. You know, when someone leaves us, they're not really gone. I mean, his presence is still here. I still talk about him as if he's here. And, Mm -hmm. um, His legacy will always live on whether you write a book about your person or Mm -hmm. not, you keep their memory alive and talk about them. And if you know somebody that's lost someone, please don't be afraid to talk about their person. We Mm -hmm. love talking about our people. We want to hear their name. We want to talk about them. And it's, it's my favorite thing to do, to be honest. Nothing Mm -hmm. could make me happier than to sit down and talk about Kevin, laugh about some of the fun memories yeah, he was a good person he was a good hearted person and I'm so proud of my son. I couldn't be mm. prouder of him
2: yeah well that that's just a, a fantastic answer and i I almost don't want to keep asking you questions after that because that was such a, a phenomenal response but I do want to ask I think it's an important question is kind of what advice would you share um, with a parent going through a similar experience that you had
3: I would say well for a parent that's going through losing a child, I would say that don't give up on yourself. Mm -hmm. It hurts so much in the beginning. And it really does get a little bit easier as time goes on. It doesn't get easy, but it Mm -hmm. does get easier to get up in the morning and to move forward and to, to try your best to, be, I, I don't have a spouse or a significant other, but I've seen a lot of relationships be harmed through losing a child. Um, yeah. Everyone grieves differently. I would say allow yourself to grieve however you need to. Whatever you're feeling is right. It's mm-hmm. right for you. There are no right or wrong ways to grieve. Um, and then allow that to the others in your life that are grieving I think there has to be a lot of openness and compassion towards each other. There has to be that hope that um, you will laugh again. I laugh. I have joy in my life again. It even it hasn't been that long. I, I still have very dark moments. But yeah. you will find a reason for getting out of bed in the morning. You will find that reason. And especially if you have other children, I think that would really help also just to allow them to um, see you going on with your life and our children that have passed They they don't want us to be unhappy. That's right. You know, they want us to continue on and try to do our best. And that's all we can do is try.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, um, and I'll, yeah. I'll I'll make a quick po- point. Barbara too is we we actually did an episode just recently. It was our uh, episode sixty one. Alison Penna. so she had lost her husband, and it, so you're kind of saying a lot of things that she was saying is, I think some people are literally cautious to approach you, right? As they go, hey, well. Barbara's in a fragile state and I I'm scared about being with her. Cause what if she, what if she has a breakdown in front of me? And I, I again, I'm introverted and I don't know how to, to help her or comfort her, console her. So, so it can get very lonely and, um, and kind of, uh, it can have a, maybe a moat around you at times because there's a there's a concern of the emotion that's surrounding you and maybe your situation. So she, I thought she gave some really great points about grief and and I think you're you're kind of leaning into that there yeah. too. So I want to make some so for those that are going through that I know she was talking from a spousal perspective but grieving anybody and just she had some really great points about hey uh, to your point the, the this person I love uh, so much of my life and being able to talk about all the good things that we did in our lives together and be able to share that and smile about it is, is really great. And again, there's going to be, all of our lives are sad and happy. So there's going to be some sad pieces that come out of it too. But I I wanted to kind of make that point because I think you're, you're spot on there with what you're saying.
3: Yeah. There is a look that you get when you tell someone you lost your son or daughter or whoever to, um, suicide. There is a look Mm. you get. And it is a look of discomfort and the person sometimes even physically backs away because it's so uncomfortable. So losing a child or a spouse or a loved one that way carries an extra burden. And um, I would just say to people, don't be afraid of us. It's okay. We can, you know, we're going to be okay. Let us talk. And I just, you know, it's, it's, it's so uncomfortable, but it's like you said, the the rates are alarming. It's alarming. Yeah. I just hope that we can change that just by loving each other different and being more open and honest and, mm-hmm. and sharing our feelings and asking someone, not just how are you, but are you depressed? Mm-hmm. Are you okay? Mm-hmm. You know, asking those specific questions, but mm-hmm. yes, talking about it really does help.
2: Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, so we've reached kind of the end of our show, Barbara, um, we do have one kind of final question for you. Um, sort of is retirement focused, right? Again, the, the, the through line of our podcast is retirement success. Um, so we want to ask you how you're going to define your personal retirement success when you get to retirement.
3: Well, I'm not far away. (laughs) Um, (laughs) I would define my retirement success as being able to not stress out and worry that I'm not going to have enough money to last me for the rest of my life. To me, that is the ultimate goal. I I personally don't have big plans to travel or do anything out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. I know that if I had, I better have planned a long time ago because I didn't. So I'm not going to Have that luxury. And that's okay. That's okay for me personally. Um, As long as I am comfortable and have someone I trust managing my money, I will be okay. And I will feel good about my future. And that's really all I could ask for at this point is to not have to stress out about it.
1: And I think Barbara too, is I think what you're, what you're saying is correct is as much as we can live our lives and lower the stress level and be able to find a level of, Hey, how do I make every day better? And how do I continue to find the things that bring me purpose in my life? And clearly, clearly Kevin, um, did and will yep. continue to provide you a really great purpose with everything you're doing. And, and I know there's lots of stories. In addition to um, your book, Kevin's choice, a mother's journey through her son's mental illness, addiction, and suicide. I know there's many more stories that you're going to share here looking forward. So I, I, I really can't wait to, to hear them over time. Um, thank you so much for coming on our show. It was so, so lovely to, to, to meet you, to hear Kevin uh, and to hear about him and and all the the really great things that he did in his life. So sharing all this, because I know our listeners are going to really take away some really great things from it. So thank you so much.
3: Thank you. Thank you, Ben and Curtis, so much for having me. It really meant a lot to me to be here. Thanks.
1: Take care. So Barbara Barbara Legere, right? Mm-hmm. So able to talk about her son Kevin, yeah. mental illness, addiction, and suicide. Man, a lot of those, lot, you know, a lot of those themes have touched our lives in lots of different ways. And I think for just sure. kind of rolling it up uh, for her with her son, gee, that's a that's a tough one. So I, yeah. I thought she did. Again, uh, this is pretty recent, for her, right? Is um, yeah, Kevin passing? Yeah. So yeah. this is. She's not that far away here from, from that happening. So I thought, man, she's very, very well composed, very educated on on all these topics. Yeah. I thought she did a fantastic job Again, reading. Uh, I know, Curtis, you and I both have read through her book, which I'll put on screen here for those watching yep. um, on YouTube. Uh, Kevin's Choice A Mother's Journey Through Her Son's Mental Illness, Addiction, and Suicide. So we'll give you the link on Amazon yeah, absolutely. as part of this. So if, if anyone wants to read through, man, there's a... L- <laughs> It, when we say it's got some raw accounting of it, man, there's some yeah. – she she does not hold back on telling you some of the, the things and situations that she's finding herself – or found herself with there. And I know we didn't cover everything. We could have spent three hours doing that. But yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's well worth a read to um, kind of get a better understanding of, of – Kevin and her her journey together. That's right. But I know we always like to highlight things that we took away personally from from today's show. So Curtis, what did you what did you take away from today?
2: Yeah, um I mean just first off uh, again, I know I said it to Barbara, but I just applaud her for what she's doing after everything she's been through and everything she went through with Kevin to now use it as a, a moment of inspiration and hopefully a, a continued story of inspiration to others. I know she talked about that a lot. Um, so that's my, my key, my first one. Um, but now I want to kind of hone in on something we discussed a couple times, and that was that's this Maine lens. Um, again, we are here in Maine. And just the the idea of, or, or the the process of being that support for somebody going through an addiction uh, or suffering from addiction, um, you know, here in Maine, it's affecting probably a lot more people than you even know. Um, fortunately, you know, speaking for myself, nothing like I'm not in this situation, but I know family members that have friends that, you know, it's everywhere around us. Um, mm-hmm. And just what Barbara shared about how you can really impact um, in a positive way that individual who may be going through something similar to kevin and you know she said it's as simple as go for a walk you know communicate it's that that tangible help that you can offer it's it's not the hey how are you text messages you know those are great um but you know really doing something take them out to dinner go see a movie go do something with them to just show them you care and show them that you're there um i, I just i can't re-emphasize that enough
1: mm. And yeah, and those
2: are I think really good, right? Because I think
1: you know I think it's easy to just go, well, that's their problem, and yeah. what can I really do? And and mm-hmm. I think what she said is right: is you know, that really any little thing really does add up, and just just showing um, that you care. And I think it's easy to say you care; um, it's harder to do. To do it, yeah. So the, yeah, I think the more you do, the the better it is. So, but I, I'd also add to, and I know I, I said this, and it, uh, Barbara brought up in the book is. How many parents out there um, say, not my kid, not my daughter, not my son, you know, and, and well, I'll tell them not to use drugs and then they won't. Right. Uh, well, I think we all know kids a little bit better than that, of that they're probably not going to do everything their parents say to do or not to do.
2: That's right. But,
1: um, you know, I, th- I think that's something where, look, I got a, I got a third about to be third grader myself. And, and, and I think those are things to kind of keep in tune to is everything she was kind of saying were were kind of some warning signs about, as she's saying for Kevin, there's some mental illness that led to substance use. And I think those are things to kind of keep an eye on again. You could have people that have zero uh, signs of mental illness at all that lead to substance uh, use that, which is perfectly um, normal. But, uh, but yeah, I think like just being in tune with your, with your kiddo. And I think that's something to take away from myself too, is, you know, doesn't matter the education doesn't matter how many times you say it, you just got to kind of kind of keep in tune with what's happening and where things are. And, and I, I I think the ultimate message she shared Mm -hmm. today was, you know, showing, showing your, The what any loved one is going through something traumatic and as bad as that is, is not, I think turning your back on them is maybe, maybe not the answer, even though it might be the advice that you hear over and over and over. So, again, kind of finding that answer for yourself. But I know we're at episode 67 today, and Barbara brought up a lot of really uh, great things and and kind of uh, things we want to share. So, if you go to blog.guidancepointllc.com, Backslash six seven. You can uh, find the show notes and transcript um, and more of the resources that we have about today's episode. Thank you for listening to today's show. I know this isn't um, the most enjoyable thing to kind of like, hey, that's retirement and planning the fun stuff. Well, sometimes the fun stuff isn't always the only the thing in life. That's right. So I think these are all things we want to cover because life has ups and downs and we want to cover kind of all the situations and really thankful to Barbara today for coming on and, and sharing her story. So thanks. Thank you for tuning in. We really appreciate your listenership and we'll catch you next time.
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session